1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black returned from a sojourn up above the Mason-Dixon line where it is still wintry and... Uh, cold and blowy and sleety and snowy. The dismal Rochester, New York. Rochester's a famous literary character, too, uh, I think. Rochester. Uh, but I don't know from what book. What book is Rochester from? I could look it up. Oh well, let me. I'm, I'm glad I got the research machine right here. Why not? Uh, Rochester, literary character. He's from. Uh, oh, Jane Eyre. Oh different Bronte. Uh, Edward Fairfax, Rochester, from the 1847 Charlotte Bronte novel, Jane Eyre. You all probably knew that, but of course I don't, because I am, as we have established, lo these many episodes ago, illiterate, but kindly. Illiterate, but kindly. I should put that on my business card. If I had one, I would. Can you hear that? That's the sound of refreshment. Me cracking open a Diet Coke. Mmm. I've been drinking a lot of Diet Coke lately. Too much Diet Coke, in fact. Too much Diet Soda in general. Now, before you get all, Hey, Michael, Diet diet Soda Pop causes cancer. I went on the research machine to answer that very question for myself, and I, I don't see any compelling evidence that that's the case. To my knowledge, that is not the case. And also... My love and fixation with diet soda will be short-lived. In Rochester, New York, not Rochester uh, Bronte, I subjected myself to some abuse. So there was some self-abuse in Rochester, New York of the gastronomical Variety. Well, first of all, what you may not know about Rochester, New York, is that the the thing that they're famous for from a culinary point of view, and perhaps the only thing they're famous for, is the garbage plate, which I described. The garbage plate is exactly what it sounds like. It's just garbage on a plate, hamburgers and or hot dogs and macaroni salad and chili and mustard and onions and home fried potatoes, all mounted up on a plate and presented to you to eat. And I had one of those, and and that was the beginning of the end for me when it came to gastronomical self-discipline there in Rochester, New York. Because afterwards, I proceeded to consume just about anything that was placed in front of me for the duration of the weekend, including many, many uh, chips, pretzels, hint of guacamole, Tostitos, and Flamin' Hot Doritos. And uh, it was just a disaster. And when I returned to Sultry to Savannah to find myself five pounds heavier, I said, hey, you got to get this under control, kid. And diet soda has been helping me do that. Because diet soda, now look, th- look—is is this, this going to be a plug, a commercial for diet soda? Absolutely not. I mean, look, if you are worried about the health effects of aspartame or whatever poisons they put in these things, then by all means, avoid them, avoid it altogether. But what I find with me and Uh, diet soda pop, is it's sweet, which is good, because I I have a little bit of a sweet tooth, and it's filling because of all the bubbly stuff in it, all the carbonation, and it kind of keeps me, I think, from eating other garbagey things. So I subsist on a lot of diet sodas, you know, and I'm trying to just do a little better dietarily. Mmm, diet soda. So I have reclaimed the Joe Schwartz Memorial Library from my son, who was... Uh, living here over his spring break. He has now returned to college. The workers are still in my home, not at the moment, um, but they are still completing their various tasks. That will continue for another couple of weeks or so, and then hopefully, hopefully I will have some peace, some quiet, some solitude here in Sultry Savannah as the weather turns warm 60 something degrees today, 70 something degrees yesterday. And it's hard to enjoy because look, we're in the first days of spring officially, you know, hard to enjoy the gorgeous weather because my body is already on high alert for the misery to come. I mean, it's one thing to have 65 degrees in March, 70 degrees in March. But it's another thing, knowing that 90 degrees and 300% humidity is right around the corner. So I'm girded, as it were, girded in anticipation for the misery that will soon unfold. There has been some misery in the life of Heathcliff. We are in the midst of recounting his early days. Mrs. Dean has been sitting up. With Lockwood the whole night, you know, chit chit chitting and chatting. and uh, you know we've heard about all his various abuses, and Mrs. Dean has basically said, "Hey kid, uh, you know, time for me to go to bed. You know, it's late. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn in." And Lockwood won't let her do it. Lockwood's like, "No, no, 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 uh, uh, Mrs. Dean, I want to hear the whole story." And and you know, ignoring the fact that she's got to get up probably at dawn to run the house, and Mrs. Dean. First of all, probably doesn't get a chance to jibber-jabber as much as she would like because, you know, she likes to spin a yarn. Second of all, you know, she's probably flattered from the attention. And also she doesn't want to say no to Lockwood, who is her employer at the moment. So he has said, come on, Mrs. Dean, you know, stay up with me. Tell me about Heathcliff, all his misery, all the terrible things that uh, he got into. And, and he, did, he did it in a kind of condescending way. You know, he said, you know, you're, you're, uh, well, I'll, here, here he says, excuse me, I responded. You know, you, my good friend, are striking evidence against the assertion uh, that uh, 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 people in this part of the country are different than other parts of the country. And he says that, you know, she's, she's, a, she's different than other people in her class. You know, he's, he's, he's being a dick, basically, you know, but seemed to work on her. And when last we met... She said, if I'm to follow my story in true gossips fashion, which she likes to do because she is a bit of a gossip, I think, I'd better go on. And instead of leaping three years, I will be content to pass to the next summer, the summer of 1778, that is nearly 23 years ago. That's where we left it last time. So we're about to go to the next summer, uh, 1778, and that is where we begin on chapter 8. Wuthering Heights. Up first, you know, I'm taking another little sip of soda pop, you know? Oh, it's good. Right out of the fridge, too. That's how you like it. And from the can. I can't drink it out of the plastic bottle. I won't drink it out of the plastic bottle. Give me a tin can or give me a glass with ice. But none of this plastic bottle nonsense. All right. On the morning of a fine June day, my first bonny little nursling and the last of the ancient Earnshaw stock was born. Oh, okay, so we got, a, we got a new baby coming 23 years ago. We were busy with the hay in a faraway field when the girl that usually brought our breakfasts came running an hour too soon across the meadow and up the lane calling me as she ran. Oh, such a grand bairn, she panted out. There's a footnote there, because we've got to find out what bairn means. A Grand bairn. B-A-I-R-N. A child. Oh, all right. A child. Such a grand bairn, she panted out. The finest lad that ever breathed. But the doctor says Mrs. must go. He says she's been in a consumption these many months. I heard him tell Mr. Hindley, and now she has nothing to keep her, and she'll be dead before winter. Oh, dear. No. Oh, that's terrible. So Hindley's about to lose his pretty young wife, it sounds like. Hindley sounds like he got himself a young lad, but the wife is going to be dead. You must come home directly. You're to nurse it, Nellie, to feed it with sugar and milk, and to take care of it day and night. "'I wish I were you, because it will be all yours when there is no missus.' "'But is she very ill?' I asked, "'flinging down my rake and tying my bonnet. "'I guess she is. "'Yet she looks bravely,' replied the girl, "'and she talks as if she thought of living to see it grow a man. "'She's out of her head for joy at such a beauty. "'If I were her, I'm certain I should not die. "'I should get better at the bare sight of it, in spite of Kenneth.' "'Who's Kenneth?' "'I was fairly mad at him.' Who's Kenneth? What? Well, don't just throw Kenneth in there if I don't know who Kenneth is. She was out of... I'm certain I should not die. I should get better at the bare sight of it in spite of Kenneth. I don't know what that means. I was fairly mad at him. Dame Archer brought the cherub down to master in the house, and his face just began to light up. Then the old croaker steps forward and says he... Earnshaw, it's a blessing your wife has been spared to leave you this, son. When she came, I felt convinced we shouldn't keep her long. And now, I must tell you, the winter will probably finish her. Don't take on and fret about it too much. It can't be helped. And besides, you should have known better than to choose such a rush of a lass. (laughs) my God. All right, so we got a little footnote here. 19... Uh, A read referring to her slenderness and delicacy. So you'll recall when uh, young Miss Earnshaw first came to Wuthering Heights, Mrs. Dean made a mental note of how slim she was. And me, with my 21st century ear, heard that and thought it a compliment, but uh, quickly corrected myself. Of course, it is not in those days to be slim, could mean to be unhealthy and it seems that that is what has come to pass the doctor perhaps that is kenneth the doctor is saying uh you shouldn't have chosen such a rush of a lass, meaning this 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 thin little whippet that you've brought to Wuthering heights because now she's given birth and though she may look hale and hearty now she's not going to make it till winter i don't know how we should know such a thing but you know i guess that's what they pay him the big bucks for and what did the master answer, I inquired. I think he swore, but I didn't mind him. I was straining to see the bairn. And, and it's also funny that he said, hey, day, look, and don't, hey look, winter's going to finish her. Don't freak out about it too much. You know, don't fret about it, kid. Can't be helped. Look, your wife's going to die. What are you going to do? You know, at least you got a kid out of the deal. So go enjoy the kid. Have yourself some fun. But, you know, not too much fun because winter's going to come and your wife's going to be dead. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. That's not what you want to hear from the doc. Definitely not what you want to hear, you know. It's the don't fret about it too much, you know, that's that's got me a little irked here. Because that's the kind of thing I feel like, you know, you get married and the doctor says, look, your wife's going to die, but don't, but calm down, Susan. Calm down about it, would you? I'll be such a baby just because your wife's going to die. So, uh, I was straining to see the barn and she began again to describe it rapturously. I, as zealous as herself, hurried eagerly home to admire on my part, though I was very sad for Hindley's sake. He had room in his heart only for two idols, his wife and himself. He doted on both and adored one, and I couldn't conceive how he would bear the loss. Well, that's kind of a joke there, isn't it? He doted on both and adored one, but she doesn't say which one. The wife or himself. You know? A little clever little jape, I think. There, from uh, Miss Emily Bronte. It's not going unnoticed, Emily. We enjoyed it. Didn't we enjoy it, everybody? And then everybody, everybody in the room with me is nodding that we all enjoyed it. When we got to Wuthering Heights, there he stood at the front door. And as I passed in, I asked, how was the baby? "'Nearly ready to run about Nell," he replied, putting on a cheerful smile. "'And the mistress?' I ventured to inquire. "'The doctor says she's—' "'Damn the doctor!' he interrupted, reddening. "'Francis is quite right. She'll be perfectly well by this time next week. "'Are you going upstairs? Will you tell her that I'll come if she'll promise not to talk? "'I left her because she would not hold her tongue, and she must. "'Tell her Mr. Kenneth says she must be quiet. Kenneth must be the doctor.' I delivered this message to Mrs. Earnshaw. She seemed in flighty spirits and replied merrily, I hardly spoke a word, Alan, and there he has gone out twice crying. Well, say I promise I won't speak, but that does not bind me not to laugh at him. So, she's just, you know, she's she's given birth and she's in love with her, her little bairn. And it's hard not to be in love with the little bairn when you feel yourself well, you know. You feel yourself to be in good spirits you've just delivered onto this earth a young earnshaw and uh you're probably not even aware of the weakness of her own constitution will she live will she die hard to know at this juncture in the book but the fact that uh you know when lockwood shows up there's no young miss earnshaw there So I think we know what happens, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, all right? Let's take a little break, and when we come back, hopefully we'll find out the fate of young Mrs. Earnshaw. Back in a moment, here on Obscure. Well, we're back, and matters of life and death, great moments of fortune hang in the balance. I hope you all got yourself a crisp, clean Diet Coke as you waited to find out what happens, what fate holds in store, uh, just, just something to, to quench the palate. Here we go. Oh, that's Delicious. Just delicious. So let's see what happens here. Uh, Poor soul. Till within a week of her death, that gay heart never failed her, and her husband persisted doggedly, nay furiously, in affirming her health improved every day. When Kenneth warned him that his medicines were useless at that stage of the malady, and he needn't put him to further expense by attending her, he retorted, I know you need not. She's well. She does not want any more attendance from you. She never was in a consumption. It was a fever, and it is gone. Her pulse is as slow as mine now, and her cheek as cool. He told his wife the same story, and she seemed to believe him. But one night, While leaning on his shoulder in the act of saying she thought she should be able to get up tomorrow, a fit of coughing took her, a very slight one. He raised her in his arms. She put her two hands about his neck. Her face changed, and she was dead. (sighs) Well, she's dead. And, you know, we barely knew her. How am I supposed to feel bad? I barely knew the, 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 the lady and can't even remember her first name. We only heard it one time. You know, She came into our lives, she gave us a kid, now she's gone out of her lives, and I can't say I'm going to miss her too much. As the girl had anticipated, the child's hair fell wholly into my hands. Mr. Earnshaw, provided he saw him healthy and never heard him cry, was contented, as far as regarded him. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's the way you parent, isn't it? That's the best possible way to parent. I I would have been uh, happy as a father, too, if... If uh I only saw my kid healthy and never heard them cry, oh boy, that would be a, just a terrific way to be a parent, because it, it's all fun it's, it's terrific and fun when they're not crying, and they're not snotting all over you or burping and throwing up and soiling themselves and all the rest of it. You know, if you could just have them when they're in a good mood, uh, you know, and then you, and then you hand them off to some lady when they start to fuss and whatever. Oh, that would be a heck of a way to parent. Wish I could have done that. For himself, he grew desperate. His sorrow was of that kind that will not lament. He neither wept nor prayed. He cursed and defied, execrated God and man, and gave himself up to reckless dissipation. The servants could not bear his tyrannical and evil conduct long. Joseph and I were the only two that would stay. I had not the heart to leave my charge. And besides, you know, I had been his foster sister and excused his behavior more readily than a stranger would. Joseph remained to Hector over tenants and laborers, and because it was his vocation to be where he had plenty of wickedness to reprove. The master, you know, every once in a while... These are just casual sentences, just casual sentences written on the page. But you know, they're just such good sentences that kind of pass us by without remark. But this is just a very good sentence, a very good sentence, and uh, worth worth troubling a moment over. Uh because it was his vocation to be where he had plenty of wickedness to reprove, you know just a just a handful of words, just a smattering of words on a page, but which tell us everything about Joseph, you know that's just great writing right there, you know I could just yeah we could just pass right through that, you know, and I could probably pick a, any number of a sentences through this book to do that with, but I mean, there's just tons of great sentences like that, I love it. The master's bad ways and bad companions formed a pretty example for Catherine and Heathcliff. His treatment of the latter was enough to make a fiend of a saint. See right there? Enough to make a fiend of a saint. It's good stuff. And truly, it appeared as if the lad were possessed of something diabolical at that period. He delighted to witness Hindley degrading himself past redemption and became daily notable for savage sullenness and ferocity. I could not half tell what an infernal house we had. The curate dropped calling, and nobody decent came near us at last, until Edgar Linton's visits to Miss Cathy might be an exception. Oh, unless, excuse me, unless Edgar Linton's visits to Miss Cathy... Uh would be an exception so you remember the linton boy the neighborhood kid you know is just a just a little pansy you know just mincing little pansy uh you know in his fancy clothes and his dapper dan overalls and whatever whatever else he had and you know just just not a he's not in the same league as heathcliff you know brooding morose heathcliff and then you got fancy pants edgar linton so edgar linton comes calling you know at fifteen, she was the queen of the countryside. She had no peer, and she did turn out a haughty, headstrong creature. I own I did not like her after her infancy was past, and I vexed her frequently by trying to bring down her arrogance. She never took an aversion to me, though. She had a wondrous constancy to old attachments. Even Heathcliff kept his hold on her affections unalterably, and young Linton, with all his superiority, found it difficult to make an equally deep impression. So, I mean, you know, look, what 15-year-old girl doesn't vex us, you know, isn't arrogant. What 15-year-old girl isn't a haughty, headstrong creature? I speak from experience here. You know, I had one of those 15-year-old daughters just a handful of days ago. He was my late master. Who? Heathcliff? Who? Who was his la- her late master? Wait, she had a wondrous constancy to old attachments. Even Heathcliff kept his hold on her affections unalterably, and young Linton, with all his superiority, found it difficult to make an equally deep impression. He was my late master. Well, I mean, what? That is his portrait over the fireplace. It used to hang on one side and his wife's on the other, but hers has been removed or else you might see something of what she was. Can you make that out? I don't know who he, she means. Does she mean young Linton was her master? Did Linton marry Catherine? Mrs. Dean raised the candle, and I discerned a soft-featured face, exceedingly resembling the young lady at the heights, but more pensive and amiable in expression. It formed a sweet picture. The long, light hair curled slightly on the temples. The eyes were... Oh, this is Lockwood, and, and here I am reading in uh, Dean's voice. Come on, Michael. Get your head out of the can of Diet Coke. Mrs. Dean raised the candle, and I discerned a soft-featured face exceedingly resembling the young lady at the heights, but more pensive and amiable in expression. It formed a sweet picture, the long light hair curled slightly on the temples. The eyes were large and serious, the figure almost too graceful. I did not marvel how Catherine Earnshaw could forget her first friend for such an individual. I marveled much how he, with a mind to correspond with his person, could fancy my idea of Catherine Earnshaw. A very agreeable portrait I observed to the housekeeper is it like, Yes, she answered, but he looked better when he was animated. That is his everyday countenance. He wanted spirit in general. So the the portrait is of Edgar Linton and a soft-featured face, okay, resembling the young lady at the heights. So, uh, who's the young lady? That's the young lady who was at Wuthering Heights. So is that the daughter? Uh, I'm... uh, Ugh. So confusing. Whatever. The long light hair curled slightly on the temples, he's got large, serious eyes, a figure almost too graceful, a kind of feminine figure, and uh but attractive. And Lockwood says I, I did not marvel how Catherine Earnshaw could forget her first friend for such an individual, meaning Heathcliff. Catherine had kept up her acquaintance with the Lintons since her five weeks' residence among them, and as she had no temptation to show her rough side in their company, and had the sense to be ashamed of being rude where she experienced such invariable courtesy, she imposed unwittingly on the old lady and gentleman, by her ingenious cordiality, gained the admiration of Isabella and the heart and soul of her brother." acquisitions that flattered her from the first, for she was full of ambition, and led her to adopt a double character without exactly intending to deceive anyone. So we've all done that, you know, she puts on her finer her finer face among the highborn Lintons, and it's only when she's home at Wuthering Heights that we see what a brat she is. I'm just tip- just typical 15-year-old behavior. In the place where she had heard Heathcliff termed a vulgar young ruffian and worse than a brute, she took care not to act like him, but at home, she had small inclination to practice politeness that would only be laughed at and restrain an unruly nature when it would bring her neither credit nor praise. Mr. Edgar seldom mustered courage to visit Wuthering Heights openly. He had a terror of Earnshaw's reputation, and shrunk from encountering him, and yet he was always received with our best attempts at civility. The master himself avoided offending him, knowing why he came, and, if he could not be gracious, kept out of the way. I rather think his appearance there was distasteful to Catherine. She was not artful, never played the coquette, and had evidently an objection to her two friends meeting at all. For when Heathcliff expressed contempt of Linton in his presence, she could not half coincide, as she did in his absence. And when Linton evinced disgust and antipathy to Heathcliff, she dare not treat his sentiments with indifference, as if depreciation of her playmate were of scarcely any consequence to her. Well, I mean, look, we've seen what happens... When this sort of activity commences, and it is not pretty because I speak to you the morning after the quote-unquote slap when one man made a half-hearted, attempted humor towards another man's uh, wife there on the Oscar telecast and got, him, got himself slapped in the face for it. Now, here the the shoes on the other foot. You know, you've got two suitors, basically each denigrating the other, and Catherine just indulges them both. Nobody's getting slapped here because Catherine doesn't want to alienate anybody, and maybe that's the better course of action. I don't know. Well, surely, though, you should stand up for those uh, that you love, whether it's Heathcliff or whether it's Edgar. Although, you know, does she really have any true affection for Edgar? We kind of doubt it, don't we? We know her, her where her real heart lies, but we also understand the society in which she lives. I've had many a laugh at her perplexities and untold troubles, which she vainly strove to hide from my mockery. That sounds ill-natured, but she was so proud, it became really impossible to pity her distresses, till she should be chastened into more humility. She did bring herself, finally, to confess and confide in me. There was not a soul else that she might fashion into an adviser mr hindley had gone from home one afternoon and heathcliff presumed to give himself a holiday on the strength of it he had reached the age of sixteen then i think and without having bad features or being deficient in intellect, he contrived to convey an impression of inward and outward repulsiveness that his present aspect retains no traces of. And in fairness, I've had, you know, teenage boys in my presence too, and I've been one, and I certainly understand the impulse to convey an impression of inward and outward repulsiveness. I understand that as well, too. In the first place, he had by that time lost the benefit of his early education. Continual hard work, begun soon and concluded late, had extinguished any curiosity he once possessed in pursuit of knowledge and any love for books or learning. His childhood sense of superiority, instilled into him by the favors of old Mr. Roonshaw, was faded away. He struggled long to keep up equality with Catherine and her studies, and yielded with poignant, though silent, regret. But he yielded completely, and there was no prevailing on him to take a step in the way of moving upward, when he found he must, necessarily, sink beneath his former level. Then personal appearance sympathized with mental deterioration. He acquired a slouching gait and ignoble look, His naturally reserved disposition was exaggerated into an almost idiotic excess of unsociable moroseness, and he took a grim pleasure, apparently, in exciting the aversion rather than the esteem of his few acquaintance. And we'll stop there, you know, with poor, miserable Heathcliff skulking around the house, you know, pouting and moping and doing his level best to be thought of as ugly and ungainly and unbearable and misbehaving and all the rest of it because he cannot have the favor of his one true love we've all been there too i suspect you know it's a, you know this is this is just typical adolescent angst And uh, I'm not getting too bent out of shape about it. You know, I mean, we've all had these summers of our discontent. When the flower of youth is in high bloom and all we can do is watch from afar and sneeze at the pollen rather than enjoy the rapturousness of full flower, the full flower of our hearts. Because, you know, various circumstances stand in the way. That is just that is just teenage love, is it not? Um, so let's conclude there for the moment uh, you know it is the summer of seventeen seventy eight revolution in America, and this being an American novel, it's surprising that they don't talk more about it, but they don't, and we'll set that aside but uh yeah, so what's going to happen? we've got it we've got a young uh a young baby there in the house. We've got Catherine and her flighty 15-year-old nature. We've got Edgar Linton come a-calling. We've got Heathcliff moping around the house. We've got Mrs. Dean looking over everything, raising the bairn. And we have Hindley Earnshaw presiding over the whole mess uh, in mourning but unable to express it. So just just a recipe for disaster there at Wuthering Heights really no adults in charge you know no adults there to keep the calm nobody at the rudder keeping the ship aimed straight and true and we know what happens i mean you know when lockwood shows up things certainly haven't gotten better those 23 years hence so that's where we are uh so we'll 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 conclude there why not it is uh, fine as fine a place as any. To conclude, I've still got half a can of Diet Coke to get through. You know, trying to drop that Rochester weight. Trying to get myself in fighting shape. Trim. Ready to go. As we finish up Chapter 8 next time. On another spellbinding episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks.